I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Our only boast is the cross. We believe this. Praise God Almighty for what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 1 as we continue our study as a church family through the gospel of Mark. Uh, beginning in verse number 9. Mark chapter 1 verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, now we ask that uh, you would use your word for the purpose you said you've given it, for our edification, that you'd use it for a correction and exhortation, uh, and training us in righteousness as we see Jesus has come near. We thank you, and this is our hope, that you've not withdrawn from us, but drawn near to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated there with the Gospel of Mark open uh, before you. Uh, Just by way of reminder, as we talked last week, the Gospel of Mark is written by Mark. You already knew that. But the Gospel of Mark is written by a man who grew up in and around Jerusalem during the events of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, we'll study a little bit later on. Mark has a small cameo in the Gospel of Mark. It seems he bumped into Jesus on the very night of his betrayal, right before he was crucified. And we know that after Jesus ascended back into heaven and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, those believers in and around Jerusalem often gathered at Mark's house. You remember when Peter was liberated from prison, the church was praying, and they were praying together, gathered together in the home of John Mark. But we also learned last week that Mark got off to a little bit of an auspicious beginning in the ministry, right? That he went on a mission trip with Paul and with Barnabas, and they set out, and somewhere along the way, in this little place called Pamphylia, here's what the Bible says John Mark did. This is a weighty word. Paul said, John Mark withdrew from us. I want you to think for a moment what's implied behind that word. Paul uses it, and you remember, Paul and Barnabas were praying and discussing about going back out on another missionary trip, their second missionary journey. Barnabas comes and says, we're going to take John Mark with us. Paul says, we're not taking John Mark with us. He's no longer part of our team. And the Bible says a sharp disagreement arose between them. Paul and Barnabas having a, like a pretty aggressive disagreement, right? And Paul says, here's why I'm not going to allow him to go with us. He withdrew. It, it means that when they thought he was going to be there, he wasn't there. Ever had somebody do this in your life? You thought they were really going to show up. You're really going to be able to count on them. And then you up and look around and they are nowhere to be seen. This is a helpful point for us. And it's why I want to circle back to it this morning with you. God, are you listening to me? God does not discard people when they make mistakes. Are we listening together? God does not throw people on the scrap heap. Now, I want to take two uh, statements. One from Acts, 
one from Mark, and you see where our hope is. Here's the statement. We already read it about Mark. There was a time in his life that Mark withdrew. And I want you to look in your Bible again in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus arrived. Can we put these two things together? All of our hope, all of our hope, choir just sang it. All of our hope is not in that we won't ever fail. All of our hope is in he has come near. It's the opposite word of withdrawing. He came near. You want some good news? God doesn't withdraw. That's good news, isn't it? God doesn't walk off the job. Now, John Mark on the missionary trip, things got tough. Things got trying. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I've read enough of Paul and know this man's pretty intense to try to keep up with Paul. And John Mark is this young guy and he just comes to a time when, man, I just need to go home. Anybody ever just want to go back to mom's house? I was going to go back to mom's house. I just got to chill. I cannot keep up with Paul. And you know what? He couldn't. But God wasn't done with him. Can we put a few things together? I ask you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. That is a, that's a book, the Gospel, written by a missionary failure, largely on the basis of a testimony of Peter, who himself was a colossal failure. This is good news for us, isn't it? This is good news because it tells us that even when we fail, even when we withdraw, even when we drop the ball, God keeps working on us. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark who failed so miserably on his first mission trip that Paul said, I'm not taking another with him ever again. And Mark writes his Gospel in large part because he knows Peter. And towards the end of Peter's life, they have to get on pen to paper under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that testimony in here we'll see it in Mark's gospel Peter has to sit down and say yeah this is the night I mean the night Jesus was betrayed I denied him not once not twice three times write that down Mark so a failure telling a failure to write about someone who does not fail Jesus does not fail and because Jesus does not fail, the good news for us is that our failures are not final. Now we can turn to any book in the Bible and get this message. We just happen to be in the Gospel of Mark. We can go to Genesis and see Abraham, Mr. I can't tell the truth. We could keep reading about Jacob, Mr. Like my dad, I can't tell the truth. We read about Moses who can't control his temper, David who could not control his lusts. Solomon, who lived like his dad, unable to control his lust. Naomi, who despaired. Elijah, who dealt with discouragement. John Mark, who withdrew from the mission field. Paul, who starts out as a man violently angry and opposed to the church. And Peter, who initially thought too highly of himself and too lowly for Christ, of Christ. Friends, we all have sins and failures. Amen? But God's grace is greater still. So the grace of God and the grace of God alone can take a person and completely transform him or her. Let's just use those same people as examples. He takes someone like Abraham who couldn't tell the truth and the grace of God can transform Abraham to be a bold proclaimer of the truth and the father of the faith. God's grace can take a lustful heart, make it a pure heart. God's grace can, 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 can rescue us in Christ from despair and discouragement, liberate us from sinful pride and replace an uncontrollable temper with patience and self-control. So if you this morning happen to have a notion that you're in a place right now where there's no way out of, no hope for change, no possibility of overcoming your temper, your lust, your lack of courage, or whatever it is in your heart that weighs you down and holds you back, open up to the gospel of Mark. Because God uses 
a missionary failure to write the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, friends, this is the very thing that God delights to do. Several years ago, I was at uh, the Dean Smith Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, watching the North Carolina Tar Heels play basketball, and there began to be a little buzz in my section, and what I learned is uh, there was an NBA scout present. Now, I uh, withheld from the temptation to go up to him and say, do you want to look at my jump shot? And he was obviously there to scout out the uh, talent on the field. What is an NBA scout looking for? Talent. Who's going to be able to excel at the next level? Who's really good at shooting and boxing out and uh, uh, outlet passes and so on and so forth? And I, and I kind of heard the whispers and looked over, and there's this NBA scout. He's got his pad. He's, what is he writing? He has his pad out. He's writing down. What is he writing down? He's looking for somebody who's going to help at the next level. Now, you think about this. When God, for example, scouts for who's going to be effective in his kingdom, you know who he looks for? If you read the scripture, he looks not often at the court, but at the end of the bench, right? I mean, who, who is it that's not even getting in the game? That's who I am going to use. Oh, Gideon over here, little weak-willed Gideon. I'm going to use him. Moses, he's going to be my spokesman. He can't even get two words out without stammering. You understand what I'm saying? To be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be humble, you have to be teachable, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, pure in heart, and the like. So when the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to inspire somebody to write the gospel of Mark, who does he go and find? Let's go find John Mark, who withdrew from the mission field. Why? Because God does not withdraw. God does not walk out. God does not leave a task until it is finished. And you can rest assured, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he will not uh, he will not forsake the good work he has begun in you. This is what God does. He uses the broken, not those who think they have it all together. Amen. He uses the weak, not those who think they are strong. He uses the powerless, not the ones who think they are wise. He uses the teachable more than the talented, the meek more than the mighty. And those the world leaves on the scrap heap, that's where God goes looking for those who he will place on the top of the Heal. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. This is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. This is how it gets started. So let me ask you, if you were going to start a movement that was going to turn the world upside down, how would you begin it? Where would you go? What would you do? What would your priorities be? What would you emphasize? And you think about how in our world today, we launch campaigns and products and so on and so forth. Let me put a picture on the screen. Here we go. It's been going on lately, right? That's uh, the Avengers premiere, this movie you may have heard about that's made like 80 gazillion dollars, right? And this is how it's launched, right? You see, what are they standing on? They are standing on the red carpet. They are dressed in their finest and they all get there and everybody's there paparazzis they're snapping the pictures they're doing the interviews they're broadcasting all over the world and then the culmination is boom this all this confetti comes out right or this one from my childhood near and dear to my heart the next picture that's chicago stadium where the bulls played i used to love this i used to like this more than the game itself before the game starts, the Bulls weren't the first to do this, but they were my favorite to do this. They would start playing this little song, and the lights would grow dim, and then they would begin to introduce from Clemson, 
Forrest Grant from Central Arkansas, Scott, and it kept building and building, and the music kept building, and guess where it culminated? You know where it culminated. From North Carolina, at guard, Michael Jordan, and then boom, the fireworks would go, and everybody's fired up. What's the continuity between the first picture and the second picture? It's all about hype. When Jesus steps forward, it's not about hype. It's about holiness and faithfulness and humility. He does it completely differently. Now, I like the bulls, but we can take, the, we can take that picture off the screen. It's what we do, right? We love to hype up movies and hype up sporting events and hype up political campaigns and and hype up advertising campaigns of a thousand different products. But Jesus, when he inaugurates, and they've been building this all up from the fall to this moment, when Jesus inaugurates, it says he just came out of this nowhere place called Nazareth and goes to an equally nowhere place called Galilee. And his first action, look what it says, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When Jesus, the author of all creation, inaugurates his public ministry, he does it much differently than the world tends to do things. No fireworks, but man, something happens here that you need to pay attention to. It's not hyped up by those around him, but it is approved by the Father. And that's the important thing for us to note. Let's take these verses here, the baptism of Jesus and how the Father in heaven responds to it to, to get a couple of uh, important notes down. If you've got an outline and want to follow along, we're going to start with this. Through his baptism, Jesus identifies with sinful humanity. Through his baptism, Jesus identifies with sinful humanity. So let's spend a moment talking about what I actually mean by that. Now we learn from last week, John the Baptist sort of is the forerunner of the ministry of Jesus. He preaches and is baptizing for the repentance of sin. So let's just put a few thoughts together. If John is baptizing as people are repenting of their sins and Jesus has no sin to repent of, why is he baptized? Anybody ever ask that question? I say I'm a little, a little confused by this. John's preaching, you need to repent and then I'll be baptized as a sign, as an outward sign of what God's doing on the inside, I believe is what the scripture is teaching. You need to be baptized, you go to the Jordan River, go down, come up, as a symbol of what God's doing on the inside. But now Jesus, for example, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So can we take that verse and, and highlight two words there? He's, unable, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet he is without sin. Here in Mark's gospel, let's just turn back to Matthew, the, very, the book immediately preceding Mark, to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist himself didn't think this whole baptizing thing was a very good idea. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. 
For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. Same story, same uh, account, but a few more details. So if Jesus has no sin to repent of, but he goes down to the Jordan River, is baptized by John, why? It's because the sinless one is identifying himself with sinful people. He is saying to us, I have come to serve you, be with you, and die for you. That's the statement of his baptism. He inaugurates his public ministry by declaring he's with us. He's with us. He's not a far-off king who will not go near his subjects. He's not withdrawn from us, right? He's a king who becomes like his subjects in order to rescue them from what destroys them. Think about the passage that Pastor Blake shared earlier. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because God, because Jesus has done this, therefore the Father has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, baptism, I think it's also important for us to note, sets a tone here at the beginning of what the whole ministry of Jesus is going to be about. What is baptism a picture of? Baptism is a picture of death and rising again. Amen? That's why I tell people, if I baptize, there's our baptistry right there. We don't have the Jordan River. We got a, a baptistry. It does say that Jesus came out of the Jordan, so... Pardon me for being a little Baptist for a moment. I think that means he was immersed in the river. But I digress. He went down and came. What's the picture? He's going to die and he's going to rise again. What's going to be the bone of contention throughout his ministry? They want him to do anything and everything for them except what they really need him to do for them, which is to die for their sins and be gloriously raised on the third day. If you want to think about it a little bit this way, when, when we're baptized, what are we doing? We're saying we're with him. I'm identifying with him. I'm submitting to him. When he's baptized, he's saying, I'm with you here in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus is baptized, he's declaring that he's with us as an act of submission to the Father. It's the spotless Son of God saying, I'm willing not just to be among sinful people, I'm willing to take their sin on myself. Perhaps you might think of it this way. Have you ever been in a scenario in which someone refused to associate with you. Ever been in a situation like that? Or for whatever reason, a person thought they were too good, or too cool, or too whatever to affiliate or associate with you. Sinful human beings love to put up barriers and categories of persons, and then in our arrogance and pride, refuse to associate with those we deem unworthy on the basis of what we made up. Praise God Almighty. Praise God Almighty. Jesus is not like that. He comes up out of Nazareth, and one of the very first things he does here is he's saying, I'm with you. I'm here 
with you. He's God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Now, he's with those that need to repent and believe. He himself does not need to repent and believe. In fact, he is the one in which we need to repent and believe on. But he is the one who has condescended to dwell with us. This is an example of what Paul says in Philippians. He made himself no reputation. He, take, he takes on the form of a servant. Well, I want to give another example of this that hopefully will make some sense. If you're of a certain generation, namely my generation, uh, you're going to recognize this. So let's put the next picture on the screen. Anybody recognize this? The old class picture, right? How many of you had a class picture when you were in school? I don't know if they still do class pictures. I don't, I don't, maybe, they, maybe they do. Now, I'm in the picture. I'm seated in a red sweatshirt. That's me. might not recognize me because that's well before my hair turned gray. But this is my third grade class, 1988. I remember most of the people in that picture. When Jesus is baptized, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm in the picture. I'm in the class picture. I'm with you. I'm here. I, I'm, I'm not removed from you. I'm not, uh, <laughs> this is amazing, because he is over us, amen? He is superior to us, but he's saying, I'm going to be with you. Now, there I am. You, you probably can't read it on the shirt. I'm wearing a sweatshirt that says Saturdays. <laughs> it's an interesting sweatshirt to wear to a class that meets Monday to Friday, so I guess I'm, in essence, telling everyone in the picture, I want to be anywhere but here with you right now. But Jesus, when he gets the picture, he, he comes clothed in great humility, doesn't he? And what is, what is he saying? This is where I want to be. The whole, whole point of Jesus' ministry is to reconcile us our sins have separated us from God. He's got to take the sin on so that we could be with him. We could dwell with him. It's a great promise of the end of the age, isn't it? That God himself will be their God and he will dwell with them. And there might not be a lot of earthly fireworks or confetti when he arrives. In fact, go back to those uh, pictures. I mean, if you go to the Marvel picture, they're roped off, right? There's not anybody going to be able to go up and talk with them. It's what we do, right? The, the really important get roped off, get their own section, get their own. Jesus comes and here's the message from the get-go. I'm not roped off. I'm here. I'm here to be with you. This sets the, the, the tone and the purpose of all of his public ministry. There's this baptism of Jesus and, and the people present is this strange guy with a camel hair Cost, uh, not costume, but that's what he's wearing, and one willing to step in the Jordan. Now, you think about what a man who can walk on water has to do to be baptized. He has to submit. There is a glorious willingness in Jesus to submit to the Father as he is among us. Now, he's not roped off from us. He's not removed from us. Unfortunately, it's often us who have withdrawn from him. So that means today you have as much Jesus in your life as you want. It's not him who's saying, I won't I'm not going to condescend to be with them. Very frequently it's us loving our sin more than him. 
loving, <laughs> loving the world more than him. Now, Jesus is declaring here from the get-go, he has made himself available to us. And friends, if this were not so, if Jesus were not willing to dwell among us, we could not be saved. So under this first point, we're going to move to the second one in a moment. Under this first point, here's an application. Jesus, who is willing to be baptized, who is willing to dwell among us, who is willing to wash feet and willing to literally lay down his life, is understood and honored most by those who are similarly willing to serve. So we must not, if, if we are followers of Jesus, we must not think we're too good, too esteemed, too whatever to serve. The greatest among us is the one who serves. Second, through his baptism, Jesus does submit to the Father. We see the Son of God, God the Son, submitting to God the Father. As soon as Jesus is baptized, here's what the Bible says, verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's an interesting phrase there. He saw the heavens opened. It's literally, he saw the heavens torn. Literally, the heavens torn open. What's going on here? Did you know? In the Gospel of Mark, this, this phrase and, and something like this only happens one other time. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Very same word and very same response. It says in Mark 15 verse 33, when, it, when the sixth hour, again that's around noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land. So when it's usually brightest outside, it's dark until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait to see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Well, friends, one's already come in the spirit of Elijah. That was John the Baptist way back here in Mark 1. So they haven't, they, they don't quite understand what's going on here. Somebody will, though. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn. That's the same word back in the baptism. The temple of the curtain was torn in two, ripped apart from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, breathed his last, said, truly this man was the son of God. This is a picture of salvation, friends. What... Um, what the father says at his baptism, the centurion says at his death. This is the grace of God at work in the world. What the father knows becomes known. This is what has to happen in order for people to be saved. Back at the baptism, which is a picture of this event, him laying down his life. He comes up and so far it's only the father who can recognize him in this way. To some regard, though, I'm sure John the Baptist does too. So, so let me not mistake that. Here's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the centurion says at his death, and, and this curtain being torn, what's going on here? Well, it's over and over and over again. The scripture is declaring to us the way back to the Father is open because of Jesus' humble submission to do the work that the Father has sent him to do. Amen? That's what God's declaring here. The temple curtain is torn in two. The, the last and ultimate sacrifice has been made when Jesus dies. The wrath of God is satisfied. The way back to God is 
open. So the baptism here at the beginning is a picture of his coming death. And then Jesus really does it. He just doesn't say he'll do it. He really does it. And here he is met with the approval of the Father. This is the purpose of the Father. To lovingly send his son to die for sins. So again, those left, he doesn't discard people on the scrap heap. He lays down his life to redeem us. What a savior. Jesus says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And so here in Mark 1, as God the Father sees God the Son come up out of the Jordan River in submission, the heavens are torn open and God the Spirit is seen by God the Son descending on him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present here. On that note, speaking of Father, Son, and Spirit at work, you know that your salvation is the glorious work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves, says the wonder of the cross is that it is the Son who hangs on the cross. The Father, in his great love, sends the Son, and the Son, delighting to do the will of the Father and sharing the Father's love, goes. Indeed, that love and delight make the Son unstoppable. He resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem, where he will die. He rebukes Peter for even suggesting otherwise. He trembles, the Son trembles at the thought of it, but lays his life down entirely of his own accord. For he, the Son, desires to be both the high priest and the sacrifice for sin, offering himself up to the Father through the Spirit. This means, he writes, that God makes no third party suffer to achieve atonement. The one who dies is the Lamb of God, the Son. And it means that nobody but God contributes to the work of salvation. The Father, Son, and Spirit accomplish it all. The baptism of Jesus foreshadows it. Yes, Father, I will submit. I will dwell with them. I will be among them. I will submit to your will. I will lay my life down. But glory to God, hallelujah. He will also take it up again. Through his baptism, last point, Jesus demonstrates what kind of Messiah he will be. He's not going to get many people's approval, just the Father. So can I tell you that? That's really the choice for your life. Always living for the approval of somebody else. Living for the approval of your parents. Living for the approval of your spouse. Living for the approval of your children. Any number of pursuits you could make. But Jesus is a Messiah who says, I live alone for the approval of the Father. And he gets the Father's approval. This is the first time since the fall that God the Father can look down on the earth and say, there's a man with whom I am well pleased. Because in order to pay for the sins of others, you cannot have any sin yourself. Would someone who's bankrupt be able to pay off your debts? You, 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 might, you might say, well, i got a good friend and, and he's willing to pay my debt. He's going to pay off my debt. He's going to go walk into the bank and he's going to write a check. What, what, what would the bank ask? Do you have these funds? And if you're bankrupt, you can't pay off somebody else's debt, can you? you're a sinner you can't pay for anybody else's sin the only one who can pay for sin is one who himself has no debt and that's who Jesus is and when he willingly says I will stand in the place I won't just be in the class picture I will actually go to Calvary and lay my life down in the coming chapters as we continue to study through Mark's gospel we'll see that 
Jesus has unmatched authority. He's going to forgive sins. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I am your promised king. But he will do all of that and more with great humility and submission to the Father. He will demonstrate at the very beginning of his ministry at the baptism that he submits and he's humble. That's the kind of Messiah that he is. Here at the baptism of Jesus, we might think of it this way. He's getting suited up. Now let's go back to Marvel for just a moment. When our Marvel heroes get ready to go into battle, what usually happens? They get all suited up, right? I mean, Iron Man gets this technologically precise suit and he gets in the suit, right? Captain America picks up his vibranium shield. The Incredible Hulk goes from an ordinary guy to, well, a Hulk, I guess. How about Jesus? When he suits up, how does he do it? It's really the opposite, isn't it? I mean, here's one who really does have all glory and power. Here is the one who could snap his fingers and lay waste to everyone and everything if he so chooses. But he enters the battle, and where's this going? If you're in gospel, we're going next to the temptation. He's here. He's here to fight, right? There is an enemy, and that enemy will be overcome. But when Jesus comes to fight, it's like he unsuits. He puts on humility. He he doesn't turn into a raging green muscle guy. He's the the all-powerful who clothes himself in frail humanity. And he goes forth to crush his enemies. Think about this. To crush his enemies by being crushed by his enemies. And the father, when he sees him enter the Jordan River to be baptized, he just can't help himself. He says, I've got to tear this thing open. So he can hear and it can be declared, This is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In a world of hype, Can you see through all the confetti long enough to say with John the Baptist, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's the one who's going to go into the wilderness to confront Satan. He's about to demonstrate that not only, not only is he with us, he also fights for us. And Satan is about to encounter a human being unlike he has ever encountered before. To this one, Jesus, out of Nazareth, submitting to the Father, entering temptation, Satan is going to encounter somebody who the approval of the Father is more important to that somebody than whatever Satan could offer. In other words, he's unbeatable. What a servant. What a savior. Willing to identify with sinful humanity, joyfully submitting to the Father, demonstrating what kind of Messiah he is. Well, we're going to enter a time of invitation, and that means we're going to respond to what we've studied in the Word today. So I'm going to give you a few prompts, if that's okay. And when we stand to pray, and then we sing, here are the prompts I want you to think about. 
first prompt goes all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. We good to go all the way back to the beginning? By faith in Christ, do you believe that God can still use you for great and glorious things in the kingdom? You might have a moment like John Mark, you withdrew, you blew it, you messed up. Right there with Peter, not once, not twice, three times. I want you to know that God delights in using people like that for his glory. Because that's how God gets the glory. Amen. Don't let the enemy, the world, the flesh lie to you and say that you're unusable. That's an insult to the grace and power of God. By faith in Christ, I ask you today, is there anyone here who needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You've looked elsewhere for life. You've looked elsewhere. Maybe you've bought into the hype of the world. And yet you can see from the scripture, here is a king really worth loving. Here is a king really worth submitting for and giving your life to. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, my exhortation and encouragement with all my heart for you is to consider Jesus for who he really is. Third prompt, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus and by faith in Christ, would you seek to be a humble servant more deeply desiring the Father's approval than whatever else you may be offered in the world? Now in a moment we're going to stand, we're going to pray. I want to stand right here at the front as your pastor and uh, someone who loves you. If you've got a concern, a burden, you just want to pray with someone. Maybe God's been talking to you about one of the things we've mentioned in the prompts. Be my joy, my privilege to stand right here and pray with you. Perhaps uh, good news is we have a high priest. His name is Jesus. You don't have to pray with a pastor. You can go right to him. I'm not saying that you can't pray. You understand what I'm saying. You may want to pray where you are. Perfectly fine. I know and sometimes in my life it's helpful for me to just get my body to work a little bit with my soul and come down to the front and kneel and praise God for who he is, what he's done, or get some of these things right. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. In some ways, the invitation is the most important part of the service. Because it's here, at this moment, that we get distinguished between being a hearer of the word only and a doer. There's something in my life that God's spoken to me about from his word. Father, may this invitation time be pleasing in your sight. May it be something that uh, is spirit-led. Some things in our lives that need to get right. God, would you, by your grace, through your word, by your spirit... Give us clarity of thought. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus. He's with us. He's for us. Give us grace to respond to you in a manner that's worthy of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.